Shalom and welcome everyone to the ICEJ webinar series. I'm David Parsons, one of the vice presidents here at the International Christian Embassy Jerusalem and our senior spokesman. And uh, we're just pleased everyone for joining us. We're going to have today an update on the Gaza war. We're at, uh, what, day 97 or so of uh, Israel's effort to uproot Hamas from Gaza following the horrific massacres of October 7th. And our guest is uh, Major Elliot Chodoff. He's in the IDF reserves, but has been in active duty over recent months helping uh, with the effort with the uh, Southern Command. Uh, and we're going to get an update from him. We talked to him about two months ago, and we'll see how things are going now to, uh, with the fighting in Gaza, also the other fronts such as uh, Hezbollah in the north and what's happening in Judea, Samaria. Uh, a little background on Elliot. Good to see you, Elliot. Good to be here. Yes. Now, a little background. He's a leading Israeli military and security analyst with 35 years of experience in the Israeli army. He's written IDF field manuals, training manuals. He's a trusted consultant uh, on the war on terrorism, on counterterrorism. I think he's uh, advised companies and others, uh, and even given testimony in different countries around the world. And, and he still serves with the IDF Home Front Command. And after the Hamas massacres of October 7th, he was called up by this IDF Southern Command to help with their campaign in Gaza, and, and especially on the Israeli side, to help with the civilian resilience. So, uh, Elliot, can you give us first a little update on what the Southern Command had you doing and what's your current role with the IDF? Uh, what I was doing primarily was uh, trying to assess and then advise on how to get the communities to return uh, to the Kibbutzim, Moshevim, Sterot. Uh, and along with that, obviously, one of the, the primary issues was security. So dealing with what what are the security needs down there, present and future, uh, in order for people to go back after after the, the horrific events of the seventh, which uh, it's no great secret was was a, a shattering of among other things, uh, belief and and reliance on the IDF to protect them, and that there's no no other way of describing the seventh as as a tremendous failure of the IDF to, to perform its its mission in protecting the communities of the South. So it, it was something amorphous. And one of, one of the things that, that was clear after being down there a couple of days is that there are no models uh, or paradigms to use for this event. It, it, it was, I hate the word unique, but this is a unique event, at least in Israel Israel's history, that where you can simply open open up the, the textbooks and the history books and say, okay, this is what happened in the past. Um, let, let's see what worked and let's see what didn't work. It's much more a, a make it up as you go along based on experience, knowledge, uh, and, and you know, professional intuition, I, I have to say, uh, in, in decades of doing this kind of work. Yeah, hijacking three airplanes at once like the PLO did, I think, back in the 70s. That's one thing, but this is unprecedented. And and over such a long swath of area, 
of, I don't know, 40 miles or so uh, along the Gaza border uh, and into Israel. All these communities just felt so unsafe uh, in their homes, these home invasions. All Israelis felt that. Right. I mean, the, the ripple effect on the country was, was enormous. I, I, I live in the north, and we're still feeling the, the psychological effects in that um, all the, the towns and villages up here, very, very far from, from Gaza, uh, we've instituted 24-hour-a-day guard duty, security, uh, all sorts of things that you, you might say might have been necessary from the outset, but now there's, there's a, an awareness of it on, a, on an entirely different level, and that, that's part of the ripple effect. I, I would say that if you think about the shock of 9-11 in, in, in the U.S. and the security ripple effect of psychology uh, you know, that followed that, we're in, I would say, a, a much greater, more intense situation than, than even then. Yeah, and, and there's been about 100,000 Israeli civilians uh, displaced, evacuated from five to seven kilometers along the border in the north. It's a long uh, border with many bends and turns and rough terrain. And then down south, another 100,000 or more from from there. Right. And look, I, I, we know a lot of these folks. We were helping, especially down a, along the Gaza border with bomb shelters, far, firefighting equipment. We, we've seen and met some of these people post-October 7th. And their kibbutzi, Moshevim, who have a collective mentality, they make decisions together, not as individual families, but as communities. And this isn't easy for, for the IDF to help them make those decisions about all of them moving back. They want to stay together as far as I yes. understand. Yes, and, and and in some cases, it's physically impossible uh, for them to move back, either because there was so much damage done to infrastructure that it'll take a while to to just get everything up and running properly. But also the communities that are closest to the Gaza border are still military zones. And I, I don't mean just technically closed military area, which is a, a legal standing. I, I don't belittle it, but uh, some of these are, are still actually in the center of our operations. And uh, one of the things that, that people in, in the military know, but I think the average civilian is, is not familiar with, is that when a tank rolls through your town, it tears up the roads, it tears up the, 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 the water lines, uh, un underground electric, electric lines, sewage lines, communications lines, uh, not out of any malice, it's just what happens when a, an 80-something ton vehicle goes on tracks, goes driving down your streets. Mm. So there's, there's a great deal of damage that's been done, just residual, uh, in the North and the South. By virtue of the fact that uh, of of our massive military presence there, dealing with uh, war situations, frankly, on both fronts. Yeah, you know, we uh, we dedicated a new Christian Embassy Nature Park right along the border at the Anzac Monument, right near Kibbutz Be'eri, two days before October seventh. Wow, and, uh, we haven't been able to go and see what our nature park looks like, but we're going to have to totally replant it and rebuild. No question. No question. Because it's right at one of the main entry points for the IDF into Gaza. But like Kibbutz Be'eri, which was very hard hit on yeah. October 7th, 
they already have their municipal building back operating. Yeah. We've been there and seen people in their offices. They've got their printing press. They got uh, they're planting. They've already planted winter wheat. Uh, that's one community that is trying to get back as quick as they can. And the rocket threat has been reduced, hasn't it? There's not as many rockets coming. The the rocket threat has been greatly reduced. I I, I hate to make predictions about these sort of things because, you know, combust is, is still out there and, and operating. But I would put it a different way. These are communities that have been living under rocket threat for decades. So for them, the rocket threat is, I don't know, a better, better word to use than, than tolerable in terms of, of living. Uh, obviously, I don't want to go back to it, and I, and I don't blame them. But if it were only the rocket threat, then I think that many of them would go back. Um, and, and as you said, many many have gone back uh, within within all sorts of restrictions. Uh, but the the shock of what happened on the seventh was an entirely different breaking of uh, reliance. Mm. On the IDF, on its on its commitment promises. I mean, I'm sure that I know that the army meant the commitment seriously, but it it didn't follow through. It didn't it didn't live up to expectations. Mm -hmm. So, the the population there and and up north is far more sensitive today than it was prior to the seventh. Not willing to rely on promises and commitments because now it, it's become really you know show show me don't don't just tell me. Yeah. Yeah. There was a major uh, New York Times article uh, in recent days. Uh, the sort of headline was that uh, Netanyahu, the prime minister, wants to keep he wants to fight uh, Hezbollah in the north next to prolong his his career. But it never mentioned not one time in this whole long article why the Israeli communities, even on the northern border, are afraid to go back. It's not so much the rockets. It's those cross-border infiltrations and, and home invasions that uh, Hezbollah is even more capable than Hamas of doing that. Indeed, that that's that's the threat. That was the reason they were evacuated in the first place. Uh, Hezbollah has an assault operations unit called Radwan, uh, named, by the way, after um, Imad Murnia, who we took out many years ago in, in, um, in Damascus, but who was he was the guy who was among other things responsible for the the bombing of the marine barracks in Beirut back in the eighties. He was so, the main liaison between Hezbollah and the Iran Revolutionary. That that too, but he he was a, a major operations mm. planner and and executor uh, in in terms of terrorist attacks. Um, in, in other words, he wasn't just a diplomat. Let's put it that way. But the Ranwan force named for him an elite commando force. Trained by Hezbollah to do these cross-border invasions. Right. Their, their mission, stated mission, trained mission, is to come across the border and, and do exactly what Hamas did on October 7th, except on a larger scale, higher level of training, higher level of organization. Uh, here, here I have to say, with all, all of the horrific things that happened on the 7th, and I'm not going to discuss details uh, in public, the, uh, the Hamas attackers made a number of errors that I don't believe that Hezbollah would make. Mm. So as horrific as it was, you know, unfortunately it could, it, it could always be worse, 
And one of the reasons that it wasn't is, is because of errors that they made. And as I said, I don't expect Hezbollah to make the same mistake. They, they got caught up in the joy of slaughtering people and, and, whatever, and Hezbollah yeah. move on more, more quickly. Okay, look, there's so many things we can talk about, but we want a basic update on what's happening in Gaza and then talk about the possible transition to uh, an escalation on the north. Uh, how much progress has the IDF made in dismantling Hamas in Gaza? Okay, the, first of all, the IDF has made tremendous progress. The question is, are, do we measure progress from the starting point to where we are or from where we are to the end point? Uh, we're, we're still far from the end point. We have essentially dismantled Hamas's military structure in what is commonly referred to as the north of the Gaza Strip, I think better understood as Gaza City and its neighborhoods and, and suburbs. Which is uh, over a million people in that area. It's, it's yeah. the most heavily it, populated. It's a huge, it's a huge urban area, uh, urban suburban uh, associated villages like uh, Bet Hanun and Bet Lahia. Um, there... That area was under the control of two Hamas brigades, some 14 battalions, all of which have been, for all intents and purposes, destroyed as organizations. In addition to that, above ground and below ground, uh, taken over their training bases, their their warehouse, their storehouses, uh, their their operational bases underground, their, their command centers, their intelligence centers. Uh, part of that that tunnel network that that's been spoken about so much, uh, hundreds of shafts, vertical shafts, and here here we need to understand when we talk about the tunnel network, it really there are really a number of aspects. One is the vertical part of it, of the, the the shafts that come up from from below and open above ground inside of buildings, in in parks, and in, in hospitals, playgrounds, you name it, where they can pop up and fire on Israeli troops and then disappear back underground again. So hundreds of those have been found and destroyed. Underground, what I'll call the horizontal network, it includes a transit, what we used to call the metro, in other words, connecting tunnels between all sorts of different areas, between the shafts, between uh, rooms, barracks, and, and things like that. And at another level, even deeper, command centers uh, from which they, they were running operations. In northern Gaza, in the Gaza City area, for all intents and purposes, we've dismantled that network. Now, I, I'm, I'm careful. Uh, I'm sure we haven't gotten every last one of them. But as, as far as a centralized operating military force, Hamas in the Gaza City environs no longer exists. What that means is two things. One is that we have taken over the territory and we're now no longer advancing and that has pros and cons not advancing means we are now static uh initiative is going over to the other side by nature and one of the things that i've, I've always taught in tactics and in, in my lectures taking the town very often is easier than holding it now, you know, when he wants it back, or in this case, in, in a guerrilla warfare situation, uh, we're going to be establishing ourselves in places, and they're going to know where we are. Uh, when you're in the initiative, so you're in one place today, you're in a different place tomorrow, and now the, and they're playing catch-up. So 
we're likely to see more small-scale attacks coming out of that area than we've seen even, even over the past few weeks and, and months. But nonetheless, from a, an organizational point of view, that area is secured. Uh, and, and the result is that we've pulled the two divisions out out of the three that we're operating. In the southern part of the Strip, as it's called, which is the Khan Yunus and Rafiah area, two other cities, uh, we're talking about something on the scale of Tel Aviv, we're still operating. We have not really gotten into Rafiah, and Rafiah is, is, is critical because that's the city that's along the border with Egypt. The route that runs along the border that is codenamed Philadelphia or Philadelphia by us, of course, everybody in the world who's followed this knows the name of the route already. It's not, not a secret, although that's the code name. Under that route is where the tunnels run that bring supplies into Hamas, for Hamas and allow them to move people in and out. And one of the concerns that we have is that they'll try to take hostages out that way. Yeah, hostages at senior Hamas leaders. senior Hamas leaders. And here, here I'll say the senior Hamas leaders concern us less than the hostages. Mm. I mean, mm. in, the, in the sense that, yes, we would rather get them in Gaza, but ultimately we will get them. You get them. Uh, but what about Egypt? They say they've they've destroyed them all. They even flooded some of them. They have. They've destroyed many. All is overstating it. We know that they're still operating. Uh, they're operating maybe in, in smaller quantities. But if we're talking about, as, as we just were, hostages and leaders, it only requires one to be operating and, and they have a conduit. To yeah, yeah. Egypt doesn't have the same motivation that Israel does in rooting out these tunnels. That's true. They also don't have the same capabilities mm -hmm. uh, for a whole bunch of reasons. Do you want to help them? <laughs> well, here, here's the problem. Uh, Sinai is functionally demilitarized because of the agreement between us and Egypt yes. from 1979. So the forces they, that they have there are not exactly their top troops. Mm -hmm. um, and that and that's good for us. We don't want, you know, top heavy Egyptian military forces along our border. The price we pay for it is, is, is somewhat less security on the other side because they're not on the level to to be doing the the kind of work that we need them to be doing. It's a dilemma. It's not it, it's not one with a simple good solution. I think the right solution is the one the the one that we're keeping to. And that is making sure that Egypt doesn't turn into a strategic threat and then deal with everything else as best we can. Yeah. Now, that that leaves us with Khan Yunus, which is where most of the fighting is going on today. Yeah. That's the center of Hamas. They are underground. We have a pretty good idea where, where they are. I wouldn't get it down to the pinpoint. Including um, Sinwar. Including Sinwar and his, his brother Sinwar, Def, uh, and others. That's where the, where the real hardcore leadership is, certainly surrounded by hostages. And here the work is, and I, I think that this is really the bottom line, it looks like not much is going on because every day what's going on is very slow, careful, meticulous work. Uh, we're trying to do it for two reasons. One is to make keep our casualties to a minimum. And thank God so far we've succeeded in keeping to a minimum, given the scale of the operation, the scale of the urban urban fighting. Uh, second, our casualties include hostages. And third, their casualties in terms of civilians, despite the, the, the farce that's going on today in the international court in The Hague, mm -hmm. claiming that, that Israel's committing genocide, we've been extremely careful about not, not injuring and killing 
non-combatants um and not 100 percent successful and you never are in, in in warfare and certainly not in urban warfare but both the numbers and the actions show that we're being very very methodical careful about going after military targets and keeping non-combatant casualties to a minimum but that yeah. whole transport since was a very very slow not spectacular operation Look, there, the IDF has announced that we've got operational control in the north and we're withdrawing troops. And all of a sudden, the media is reporting that uh, the Gaza war is almost over and the IDF has to come back. No, there's intense fighting in the center and in the south. And that's going to take a few more weeks. I think some estimates say by by the end of March, Israel may uh, uh, have a, a, a real grip on most of, of Gaza. I hate to give those kind of time estimates. They they usually end up blowing up in your face. Um, I would say that we'll know it's over when it's over. It may and and it could take longer or less time. There there could be a a ceasefire going into effect to get hostages released. Mm. Keeping in mind that that that's part of the mission. That could that can add weeks. Not only will it add the week a week or two or three or whatever of a ceasefire, but then it'll. It means starting up again and all the reacceleration costs in terms of time. So I, I'm not going to commit to to February, March, April, June, or whatever. Okay. Uh, I also think that that kind of pressure is, is foolish. The army could very easily stop and say, you know what, we have to actually slow this down. We we need to be more methodical. We've hit as as it is. We found the tunnel system far beyond what was estimated by intelligence. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the war and life is full of surprises in warfare most of them are not good so i would say with all of the media's interest in having a new story every day i think here we're we're likely for the most part to see the same story repeated day in and day out uh with occasional successes that are noteworthy but most of these are going to be i hate to use the word mundane but mundane in the sense of another day of, of killing some more terrorists, finding some more tunnel shafts, clearing another tunnel, finding more rocket launchers, more arms caches, and, and that sort of thing. And each day is going to start looking a lot like like previous ones with not a lot to report for the media. What can I say too bad about them? Yeah. Look, when you talk about the pace of uh, the, the fighting and the deliberate, uh, very cautious approach of the IDF, there is a lot of pressure from the U.S., from others, to to get this over, and and especially to let some of the Gazan civilians move back to the north, which I think would be disastrous to allow that prematurely. Correct. Absolutely. First of all, we know that among the so-called civilians are plenty of Hamas terrorists, and at at the price of uh, getting civilians out so that we could limit casualties. We know that the terrorists escaped with them and, and went out into the humanitarian areas. And that means they'll come back and, and we'll, we'll have to start all over again to a certain extent. One, if, if they do come back, it'll also make it more difficult for us to do precisely that because now we'll have civilians once again mixed in with terrorists. Uh, civilian casualties will go up. And I think in all the bad choices that we have, and they're all bad choices, um, 
the better choice is to keep the, the population out for a while longer and able to and to enable the military on the ground to do the job uh, rather than than face a, face a resurgent Hamas that will be less prepared to deal with. Yeah, I think it's one of the best uh, le- about the best leverage Israel has in all the negotiations that are going on about a post-war Gaza. We're not leaving until certain things are accomplished. Right. And, uh, and the civilians aren't going back. Uh, how? Uh, what sort of progress has the IDF made uh, in the three set goals: dismantling a mosque, returning the hostages, and secure uh, restoring a sense of security along the border communities? We sort of addressed any of those, but uh, the hostage issue is there any update? It, it looks like the pattern is is that as soon as you get close to any of them, they're executing them, dumping their bodies somewhere. Yes. Um, first of all, I'm I'm not convinced that the number that we're announcing officially uh, is correct, unfortunately. I think they've killed many more than... In, in absence of knowledge, we list everybody. The but, official record, uh, official numbers given out right now, 132 hostages still, but right. even Gaza, around right. 25 of them, uh, uh, there's evidence they're dead, but it could be much higher. Right. So, look, we're not going to play guessing games. We have to behave as if everybody's alive until we're, we're sure otherwise. Uh, but I, I, my belief is that the numbers are, are significantly lower. I don't, I don't have a, a, an actual number. Of live hostages. Of live hostages. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're going to hold on to them. Look, they, for them, that's their bargaining card. That's their they best have, leverage. Yeah. It's the only leverage. Um, look, they, they have, at this point, two objectives that are, in it, that are closely connected. One is that they, meaning the leaders, survive so, the experience, the Hamas leaders. And two, that Hamas remain in control of Gaza mm. in the aftermath. That's what they want. They've said it outright. They won't negotiate over anything less than that. And as in order to uh, achieve that, an immediate end of the Israeli military operation in Gaza. Now, the truth is, they have no reason to back down off of that. And we have absolutely no reason to give them any of it. Mm. So it's kind of hard to have a serious negotiation between two sides that have absolutely no overlap in common uh, you know, that, that you can discuss. They, I think they were terrifically surprised by our response. I think they were, they're still terrifically surprised by the tenacious uh, continuation of this operation. They were thinking something much more along the lines of, well, a week or two of, of, of bombardment, maybe some raids, and then we'll get back to business as usual. And now they're really in a situation where they don't have a lot to compromise over. They it, it's either ended or they're finished. And I, I I'm afraid that that's where we're going to end up with uh with with the negotiations. In other words, I I don't see I you know life is full of surprises. I don't see Hamas agreeing to release significant significant number of hostages for a week or two of breathing space. Mm. Uh, sadly, I agree. I think they realize it's they're already in the end game here, and these hostages are only thing keeping them uh, alive. Yeah. 
I look at some point, whether a few months down the road, whether it's March or a little later, uh, a lot of the intensive ad, uh, military advances in Gaza, uh, going in and rooting out terror tunnels and everything in, in different new areas, is going to come to an end. Uh, and you go to another sort of phase in Gaza where it's more holding the territory, as you say. And then the question shifts the transition to whether Israel takes on Hezbollah in the north, which is where you live and really where what you've specialized over recent years or decades. And first of all, are you surprised Hezbollah has not escalated more than it has? It hasn't joined an all-out war. It looks to me there's been opportunities to do it. But Nasrallah and, and Hezbollah and, I guess, Iran, they want to preserve that threat and not have it taken out now. I think their original plan was to go in. I think they were tremendously surprised by Israel's response actions of October 8th, 9th, 10th, and the aftermath of the, of the Hamas attack, uh, including immediately declaring that this was a war, something that we had always hesitated. You know, in, in 2006, when we had our, the 34-day war with Hezbollah, uh, was in July and August of 06, the government decided that it was a war only in March of 07. Hmm. Uh, now, you, you might think, well, what difference does it make? But in fact, by saying it's a war, it changes all sorts of legal status situations in the country. It also changes all sorts of procedural things inside of the army, and I won't go into details, mm -hmm. but it has to do with uh, how much intelligence is released to the forces, how the forces are, are organized and sent. There, there are ramifications. So that declaration on the 7th was more than simply symbolic. Second, calling up the reserves in the numbers and at the speed that it was done in, in that week in the aftermath I think surprised everybody on the other side. By the way, it surprised a bunch of us on this side as well. Uh, in 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 my case, positively. In their case, negatively. Uh, instead of thinking, as they I'm sure they did, as they as happened in '06, that they were going to be facing an IDF that was bogged down in Gaza or around Gaza, and now would have to run between a northern front and a southern front. Suddenly, they were facing hundreds of thousands of reservists in the north while Hamas was facing hundreds of thousands of reservists and, and, and a good part of the regular army in the South. So that was a an oops moment, I think, for Hezbollah. Controversial as, as it is, uh, evacuating the communities of the northern border made it less attractive for Hezbollah because now they have no real means of gaining a short-term tactical victory, uh, in other words, grabbing an empty kibbutz along the border does them no good whatsoever. Uh, so why start under those circumstances? And last but not least, when we finally did go into Gaza on the ground and, we're, and started doing what, what we've been doing since, um, how did uh, Defense Minister Gallant say a few days ago, in, 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 in case Hezbollah isn't paying attention, we can do copy-paste on them to what we're doing here. And everybody knows that that's not, that's not an idle threat. 
So they're trying, they're caught. They're caught in the horns of a dilemma. Um, too bad. But the dilemma is, on the one hand, they can't be seen just sitting back and doing nothing as we're pounding Hamas and, and dismantling it. On the other hand, no, they don't want to have happened to them what's happening to Hamas and Gaza. So they're operating in this this sort of you know middle zone of keeping the border hot, firing primarily either at evacuated towns and villages, they're causing damage, but there's no real civilian population there, uh, or at military targets, which we've shown over the years, and I don't agree with this, but it's an understandable policy, that we'll, we will accept uh, a certain amount of, of violence against our military and will respond with violence, but that'll be within what, what can be loosely called the rules of the game. And they haven't violated those rules significantly uh, over the past few months. They now, did hit the the listening and, and radar controls on Mount Marone and yes. the, the and Northern Command headquarters in yes, military, But those are military targets. Military targets, but it was minimal damage, so Israel can live without for now. Exactly. Um, and as I said, I, I don't personally agree with that, but it's an understandable policy. Yeah. It's not a crazy well, policy. Look, uh, if if Hezbollah doesn't want to up the ante and go all out war, that puts the ball in Israel's court. Uh, yeah. And this this transition at some point, most of the work is done in Gaza, and you now change the focus to the northern border. Should Israel go in? Or should the, the diplomatic effort, if they agree to some sort of symbolic even withdrawal above the Latani River uh, voluntarily or get sort of pressured into it, should should Israel hold back? Or should is it inevitable and necessary for Israel to go after Hezbollah next? I don't know about inevitable, but I do believe it's necessary. In my opinion, leaving them in place is a recipe for disaster. Uh, first of all, the communities of the north are not going back so quick. Uh, here again, they they might have convinced themselves up until October 7th that they were secure. Now they're sure that they're not secure. And leaving Hezbollah in the position that it was on October 7th is a non-starter for the communities along the north. And that includes Kiryat Shmona and Shlomi, not just... Uh, Kibbutzim and Moshevim along the border. So I think it's highly unlikely that we will leave Hezbollah in place. And I think it's folly to, to make the arrangement as a diplomatic negotiated one, because we know very well that, that their adherence to those kind of agreements is uh, very close to zero. Over time, if nothing else, it's, it's absolutely zero. In other words, they'll, they can withdraw beyond the Latani today and start straggling back tomorrow. Mm -hmm. uh, and then the question always becomes, and this is a difficult one in, in, in strategy and in global diplomatic strategy. Uh, okay, so we got them back across the Latani by agreement. Tomorrow, 20 of them come back across. Do we start a war over 20? And then the next day, 20 more come across. So we start a war over another 20. And, and that's the way, that's the thinking. In other words, there can be a thousand of them across and another 20 come across. Well, if you've accepted a thousand, then it's only 20. And we could very, very quickly, we would very quickly find ourselves right back where we started 
Um, and now the world's saying, but you have an agreement. Now, how can you violate such an agreement? I think it's much more likely and, and more prudent from a strategic point of view. The army is mobilized. Uh, we're, we're set up. We're, in a, we're already in a war footing. The economy is taking the hit. Uh, now is the time to drive them back. Hmm. Especially with Russia preoccupied with its own war, it really uh, gives yes. Israel a unique moment to stand up to Iran through this. It's the most dangerous of all its proxies. Absolutely. Yeah. Look, uh, one of the signs that we're shifting to uh, the war in the north would be moving some of the Iron Dome batteries up there. Are you able to share anything? The The rocket threat is being reduced constantly from Gaza. Their, their rocket arsenals in Hamas are being depleted. They're being destroyed. They have less areas to shoot from. Uh, but uh, how, do you know, can you share if some of these batteries have been moved to the north? How how uh, protected is the north right now? Okay, so first of all, as far as I know, batteries have not been moved to the north, certainly not in any significant number. Uh, but here, I think it, it, it's important to understand the Iron Dome is not going to be that effective against Hezbollah, simply because of the numbers that they're capable of firing. Overwhelm it. Yes. And un unlike Hamas, which, of course, on, on the 7th fired quite a number, of, a large number of rockets, Hezbollah has many, many times that capability, longer range, more accurate, and much greater launch capability, in other words, simultaneous launch, which is what we're, we're concerned with if we're talking about Iron Dome. How many rockets can they put in the air simultaneously across the front, at which point, as you say, the system is overwhelmed. It's it's not that it won't operate at its at its full capacity, but its full capacity will be, will be nowhere near the quantity necessary uh, to deal with with Hezbollah's firepower. And you coordinate that with all sorts of armed drones coming over at the same time. It's a dangerous formula. Uh, look, I have a Knesset source who told me yesterday that uh, the Iron Beam, this new laser system that can shoot down all sorts of rockets and mortars and missiles and and is much more efficient cost-wise in doing this, that it is operational and some of the batteries have been deployed. I've heard that. Um, I'm, you know, I'm old school. Uh, yeah. And you're at the high tech relying on, on tech too much. Uh, that's, what? that was the mistake of October 7th. Yeah. So I, I, I still believe that the way to stop the rocket threat is at its source and not, not at its, on, the, on the delivery end. Which ultimately requires a ground invasion. Yes. Yeah, okay. And uh, the drone game, Israel's a little better at this, but uh, how serious is the drone threat from uh, from the Iranian proxies, but especially in Lebanon? But the drone threat is a real threat. I don't think that it's qualitatively more serious than any other indirect fire, artillery, rocket. It, it's part of that whole package. And it can be partially intercepted, partially interdicted, but it comes back to, to what I said earlier. The, the the solution is stopping it at its source, not, not at its delivery yet. Mm. We can shoot some down. We can jam some. Uh, we mess with the, the drones use GPS. We mess with GPS. Every other day I turn on my phone and I find out 
that I'm in Beirut, not in, in northern Israel. Uh, some people find that they're in Cairo. GPS is doing all, all sorts of weird stuff, and that, that's us jamming and, and, and ghosting and things like that. Uh, but ultimately, in all of these cases, the way you stop enemy fire is by stopping the enemy, not by defending against the fire itself. Mm-hmm. And look, it, it may be a little early to really talk about how a, a ground invasion in, into southern Lebanon might play out, but you have three main areas of, of Hezbollah's strength. In the south, in the villages, in South Beirut, uh, where this strike against Hamas senior leader, his office was in the middle of Hezbollah's uh, civilian in the urban center, and then in the Becca Valley, and lots of tunnels, lots of rockets. Uh, it's it would be a tough a tough fight. It's a tough fight, and and Hezbollah is better trained, organized, and equipped than Hamas. Here we're talking about a, a real army that knows what it's doing. With experience in Syria. With experience in Syria. As a matter of fact, the, the commander of the Radwan force we took out a few days ago gained a lot of combat experience in, in Syria. It's one of the reasons that he, he was the dangerous character that he was. Here we should mention that taking out these leaders um, are always have, a, have two aspects to it. One is the symbolic and the other is the operational. Some are more symbolic than operational and some are the other, the other way around. In his case, it was both. Taking out a leader of, of this, the, the Redwan force uh, is symbolic, but he wasn't simply a figurehead. Mm. He was truly experienced, trained, operational commander. Yes. Uh, so, so that hurts them, not just, not just hurting the, the, the consciousness of the system, um, but they are, they are very good. Yeah. And we'll have to deal with that. And what's your assessment of the the Lebanese armed forces? Are they in for a fight with Israel joining Hezbollah? Are they going to stand aside? Uh, there's even some people saying they're arming, especially the Christian militias, in order to defend themselves and to and to help beat Hezbollah, get rid of Hezbollah's grip over their country. The, the Lebanese armed forces are nothing to 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 really talk about in terms of real warfare. Um, that Lebanon could very, very easily disintegrate once again mm. into chaos uh, is highly likely. And it's one of the reasons that, that the Lebanese government is trying also to, to come to some sort of terms. It's one of the reasons France is, is so involved. Uh, Lebanon is a, is, a, is a sort of stepchild. Um, but you know, it's, it's a fragile country to begin with. It's been that way for decades. And the possibility of it, as I said, of it disintegrating is very, very high in, in, in mm. the case of a, a major war with Hezbollah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Finally, um, the other front, uh, Judea, Samaria, the West Bank, uh, uh, does the IDF have that that front under control now? Some say it, the, it's all going to explode, but uh, it seems there's you know been some terror incidents, but in a way it's nothing out of the normal right it's it's been slightly more intensive in judea and samaria as in gaza although not not to the same extent we've taken pretty much a hands-off approach over the years we've we've gone in and dealt with with high-end 
uh, intelligence markers of, of terrorists and terrorist organizations and leaders, but really not gone in with, in any strength to dismantle it. And we're paying some of the price for that now also in, in terms of uh, their munitions, their their IEDs doing damage, the, the, the numbers that we're seeing, uh, their level of organization, and there at least we're, we're preempting in the sense that the operations are ours. Uh, we've always had, always since 2002, we've had a much greater presence in Judea and Samaria militarily than we did in Gaza. Uh, and you know, let's, let's keep in mind, everybody talks about the disengagement of 2005. We pulled out of Gaza in 1994 and 1995 after Oslo. Mm. There were still Jewish communities there until 2005, but we were not operating in Rafiyah Hanunas, Gaza City, and, and those mm. places already back to from, from the mid-90s. So in Judea and Samaria, that was also the case, but we went back in following Chomat Magen in the spring of 2002. So mm. there, there we've got much more going on, much better intelligence, much more force on the ground, much better control between the cities of the roads. It's not absolute, but the likelihood of an explosion there is much limited, mitigated by the operations that, that we've had ongoing now for the past couple of months. And uh, how serious is the tunnel threat? There's a lot of Jewish communities saying we are hearing tunneling uh, in, in Judea, Samaria. We're afraid they're going to tumble into our communities. And there's even some concern that that uh, in the Tolkarm area, for instance, the uh, the militias there have already tunneled under Highway 6, which is this huge main you know, artery, north-south artery for Israel now. I wouldn't dismiss it, uh, but tunneling in Judea and Samaria is a much more difficult prospect than tunneling in Gaza. Remember that the substrate in Gaza is sand. Mm. Now, that has its own challenges that, that and we've seen the pictures of all, all the tunnels being um shored up with with concrete concrete walls concrete arches and that sort of thing but the actual digging in sand is much much easier in judea and samaria we're talking about limestone uh much more complicated and once again i, I never say never but the extent of what we saw in in gaza we will not see in, in judea and samaria Hezbollah has been able to do it, but they've got they've been able to bring in uh, North Korean tunneling equipment, so. and even even there, uh, not to the extent of what, what we've seen in Gaza. Okay, all right. Well, that's one of the big takeaways that the tunnels are are even more than than uh, you thought. And we appreciate that insight. Uh, we thank you, IDF Major in the Reserves, Elliot Chadoff. Uh, and uh, we thank you for your time, your expertise, your insights here on the ICJ webinar series. My pleasure. Thank you for being with us once again. We hope you uh, got a lot from today's interview. Uh, we also want to remind you, yesterday we interviewed Andrew Tucker, an international lawyer uh, uh, who's uh, based uh, in, in the Netherlands where these cases are coming up against Israel in The Hague, and we talked about this genocide petition 
against Israel, filed by South Africa, which the hearing is already uh, underway as we speak now, uh, the first uh, bank of hearings before the judges, and uh, it'll be today and tomorrow and some more activity next week, but you can learn all about that on our uh, go to our YouTube channel or our Facebook channel and uh, watch that interview on our webinar series. And of course, at the top of the hour, 4 p.m. Israel time, we have our daily global prayer gathering today. So uh, join us then to pray with Christians from all around the world for Israel and its war against these uh, enemies. We thank you for being with us. God bless you from Jerusalem.